Hello, Ratchet Book Club listeners. Before I get to the episode, I want to take a moment to address the June 24th Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. This decision stripped away the legal right to have a safe and legal abortion. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. This decision can also lead to the loss of other rights. To learn more about what you can do to help, go to podvoices.help. I encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Chapter 82. As meaningful as Jacob's death had been within the small world of his family, wait, no, wait, I gotta say this real quick. Dude, dude, like Angel, oh my goodness. Angel shoved this dude through a wormhole into a place where there's giant bugs. And at first, my mind had like huge pincher bugs and all that kind of stuff that you were going to run from. But then I was like, you know what? How giant can a giant bug be? Like the bug might come up to his kneecap. But then I was like, Dean Koontz wouldn't write it like that. Them bugs are above his head and they're all carnivorous even though in real life they only eat you know grass but dang angel and then barty throwing the throwing the can of soda right at his face like a bloosh i'm a prodigy man that is talent like he was silent like he showed that he was silent because he was listening for his voice so he could throw the can of soda at his face like that's gangster ah <sighs> Boy, that was such a great chapter. And I forgot to talk about it. And I was like, man, the next time I uh, read, I'm going to talk about that chapter. That's the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about that chapter. I mean, yeah, horrible that Jacob is dead, but I mean, he was a downer. So, I mean, he's still family, but at least Edom was doing something with his life. You know, like he had the, the, um, Gardening and whatnot. Jacob didn't even come out the house. Like his dad's. What his dad did to him ran deep. So. But yeah. Man. That chapter was just like magic for me. As meaningful as Jacob's death had been within the small world of his family. Agnes Lampion never lost sight of the fact that there were more resonant deaths in the larger world before 1968 ended and the year of the rooster followed. 
On the 4th of April, James Earl Ray gunned down Martin Luther King on a motel balcony in Memphis. But the assassin's hopes were foiled when, because of this murder, freedom grew more vigorously from the richness of a martyr's blood. On June 1st, Helen Keller died peacefully at 87. Blind and deaf since early childhood, mute until her adolescence, Miss Keller led a life of astonishing accomplishment. She learned to speak, to ride horses, to waltz. She graduated come loud from Radcliffe, an inspiration of millions and a testament to the potential in even the most blighted life. On June 5th, Senator Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated in the kitchen of the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. Unknown numbers died when Soviet tanks invaded Czechoslovakia, and hundreds of thousands perished in the final days of the Cultural Revolution in China. Many eaten in acts of cannibalism sanctioned by Chairman Mao as acceptable political action. John Steinbeck, novelist, and Tallulah Bankhead, actress, came to the end of their journeys in this world, if not yet in all others. But James Lavelle, William Anders, and Frank Borman, the first men to orbit the moon, traveled 250,000 miles into space, and all returned alive. Of all the kindnesses that we could do for one another, the most precious of all the gifts, time, is not ours to give. Bearing this in mind, Agnes did her best to guide her extended family through its grieving for Harrison and for Jacob in the happier days. Respect must be paid, precious memories nurtured, but life also must go on. In July, she went for a walk on the shore of Paul Damascus, expecting to do a little beachcombing to watch the comical scurrying crabs. Somewhere between the seashells and the crustaceans, however, he asked her if she could ever love him. Paul was a dear man, different from Joey in appearance, but so like him at heart. She shocked him by insisting they go at once to his house, to his bedroom. Red-faced as no pulp hero had ever been, Paul stammered out that he wasn't expecting intimacy of her so soon, and she assured him that he wasn't going to get it so soon either. Alone with Paul, as he stood abashed, she removed her blouse and bra and, with arms crossed over her breasts, revealed to him her savage back. Whereas her father had used open hand slaps and hard fists to teach his twin sons the lessons of God, he preferred canes and lashes as the instrument of instruction for his daughter because he believed that his direct touch might have invited sin. Scars disfigured Agnes from shoulders to buttocks, pale scars and others dark, cross-hatched and whirled. Some men, she said, wouldn't be able to sustain desire when their hands touch my back. I'll understand if you're one of them. It's not beautiful to the eye, and rough as oak bark to the touch. That's why I brought you here. So you'd know this before you consider where you want to go from where we are now. The dear man cried and kissed her scars and told her that she was as beautiful as any woman alive. They stood then for a while, embracing. His hand upon her back, her breast against his chest. And twice they kissed, but almost chastely, before she put on her blouse again. My scar, he confessed, is an experience. For a man my age, Agnes, I'm in some ways unbelievably innocent. I wouldn't trade the years of Perry for anything or anyone, but intense as it was, our love didn't include, well, I mean, you may find me inadequate.
I find you more than adequate in all the ways that count. Besides, Joy was a generous and good lover. What he taught me, I can share. She smiled. You'll find that I'm a darn good teacher and I sense in you a star pupil. They were married in September of that year, much later than even Grace White's wager date. As Grace's guests have been closer than her daughters, however, Celestina paid with the monthly kitchen duty. When Agnes and Paul returned from a honeymoon in Carmel, they discovered that Edom had finally cleared out Jacob's apartment. He donated his twins' extensive files and books to a university library that was building a collection to satisfy growing professorial and student interests in apocalyptic studies and paranoid philosophy. Surprising himself more than anyone, Edom also presented his collection to the university. Out with tornadoes, hurricanes, tidal waves, earthquakes, and volcanoes. Bring in the roses. He lightly renovated his small apartment, painted it in brighter colors, and throughout the autumn, he stocked his bookshelves with volumes of horticulture, excitedly planning a substantial expansion of the rosarium come spring. He was nearly 40 years old, and a life spent fearing nature could not be turned easily into a romance with her. Some nights he still stared at the ceiling, unable to sleep, waiting for the big one. And he avoided walks on the shore and respected deadly tsunamis. From time to time, he visited his brother's grave and sat on the grass by the headstone, reciting aloud the gruesome details of deadly storms and catastrophic geological events. But he found that he had also absorbed from Jacob some of the statistics related to serial killers and to the disastrous failures of man-made structures and machines. These visits were pleasantly nostalgic, but he always came with roses too and brought news of Barty, Angel, and other members of the family. When Paul sold his house and moved in with Agnes, Tom Vanadium settled into Jacob's former apartment. Now a fully retired cop, but not yet ready to return to a life of the cloth. He assumed the management chores of the family's expanding community work and he oversaw the establishment of a tax-advantaged charitable foundation. Agnes provided a list of fine-sounding and effacive names for this organization, but a majority vote rejected all her suggestions and, in spite of her embarrassment, settled on Pie Lady Services. Simon Magison, lacking family, had left his estate to Tom. This came as a surprise. The sum was so considerable that even though Tom was on dispensation from his vows, which included his vow of poverty, he was uncomfortable with that fortune. His comfort was quickly restored by contributing the entire inheritance to Pilate services. They had been brought together by two extraordinary children, by the conviction that Barty and Angel were part of some design of enormous consequence. But more often than not, God weaves patterns that become perceptible to us only over long periods of time, if at all. After the past three eventful years, there were now no weekly miracles, no signs in the earth or sky, no revelations from burning bushes or from more mundane forms of communication. Neither Barty nor Angel revealed any new astonishing talents. And in fact, they were as ordinary as any two young prodigies can be except that he was blind, and she served as his eyes upon the world. The family didn't exist in anticipation of developments with Barty and Angel, didn't put the pair at the center of their world. Instead, they did the good work, shared the satisfactions that came daily with being part of Pie Lady Services, and got on with life. Things happened. 
Celestina painted more brilliantly than ever and became pregnant in October. In November, Edom asked Maria Gonzalez to dinner in a movie. Although he was only six years older than Maria, both agreed that this is a date between friends, not really a boy-girl thing. Also in November, Grace found a lump on her breast. It proved to be benign. Tom bought a new Sunday best suit. It looked like his old suit. Thanksgiving dinner was a fine affair, and Christmas is even better. On New Year's Eve, Wally downed one drink too many and more than once offered to perform surgery on any member of the family, free of charge, right here, right now, as long as the procedure was within his area of expertise. On New Year's Day, the town learned that it had lost its first son in Vietnam. Agnes had known the parents all her life, and she despaired that even with her willingness to help, with all her good intentions, there was nothing she could do to ease their pain. She recalled her anguish as she had waited to learn if Barty's eye tumors had spread along the optic nerve to his brain. The thought of her neighbors losing a child to war made her turn to Paul in the night. Just hold me, she murmured. Barty and Angel would soon be four years old. 1969 through 1973, the year of the rooster, chased by the year of the dog, followed fast by the pig, faster by the rat, and with the ox passing at a stampede pace. Eisenhower, dead. Armstrong, Collins, Aldrin on the moon. One giant step on soil untouched by war. Hot pants, plane hijacking, psychedelic art. Sharon Tate and friends murdered by Manson's girl seven days before Woodstock. The age of Aquarius stillborn, but the death unrecognized for years. McCartney split. Beatles dissolved. Earthquake in Los Angeles. Truman dead. Vietnam sliding into chaos. Riots in Ireland. A new war in the Middle East. Watergate. Celestina gave birth to Seraphim in 1969 saw her painting on the cover of American Artists in 70, and gave birth to Harrison in 72. With his sister's financial backing, Edom purchased a flower shop in 71. After ascertaining that the strip mall in which it was located had been even more soundly constructed than the earthquake code required, that it didn't stand on slide-prone land, that it did not lie in a floodplain, and that, in fact, its altitude above sea level ensured that it would survive all but a tidal wave of such towering enormity that nothing less than an asteroid impact in the Pacific could be the cause. In 73, he married Maria Elena, that boy-girl thing after all, whereupon she became Agnes's sister-in-law, in addition to having long been a full sister in her heart. They bought the house on the other side of the original Lampian homestead, and another fence was torn down. Tom proved to be more useful than either a cop or a priest of piloting services when he discovered a talent for money management that protected their funds from 12% inflation and, in fact, brought them a handsome return in real terms. Then came the year of the tiger, 1974. Gasoline shortages, panic buying, mile-long lines of service stations. Patty Hearst kidnapped, Nixon gone in disgrace, Hank Aaron toppled Babe Ruth's long-standing home run record, and the inflation rate topped 15%, and the legendary Muhammad Ali defeated George Foreman to regain his world heavyweight title. On one particular street in Bright Beach, however, the most significant event of the year occurred on a pleasant afternoon in early April, when Barty, now nine years old, climbed to the top of the Great Oak and perched there in triumph 
king of the tree and master of his blindness. Agnes returned home from a pie run with the usual team, grown to five vehicles, including paid employees, to find a gathering in the yard in Barty halfway up the oak. Heart jumping like the heart of a fox-stalked rabbit, she ran from the driveway into the yard. She would have cried out if her throat hadn't seized up with terror at the sight of her boy at neck-breaking height. By the time she could speak, she realized that a shout or even the unexpected sound of her plaintive voice might unnerve him, cause him to misstep and bring him caroming down, limb to limb, in a bone-snapping plunge. Among those present before the caravan returned were a few who should have known better than to allow this madness. Tom Vanadium, Edom, Maria. They all stared up at the boy, tense and solemn, and Agnes could only suppose that they, too, had arrived after the fact, with the boy already beyond easy recall. The fire department. The firemen could come without sirens, quietly with their ladders so as to not break Barty's concentration. It's all right, Aunt Aggie, said Angel. He really wants to do this. What we want to do and what we should do are not one and the same, Agnes admonished. Who's been raising you, sugar pie, if you don't know that? Are you going to pretend that you've been brought up by wolves for nine years? We've been planning this for a long time, Angel assured her. I've climbed the tree a hundred times, maybe two hundred, mapping it, describing it to Barty, inch by inch, the trunk and its four divisions, all the major and minor limbs, the thickness of each, the degree of resilience, the angles and intersections, knots and fissures, all the branches down to the twigs. He's got it cold on, Aggie. He's got it knocked. It's all mad to him now. They were inseparable her son and this cherished girl, as they had been virtually since the moment they had met more than six years ago. The special perception that they shared, all the way things are, accounted for part of their closeness, but only part. The bond between them was so deep that it defied understanding, as mysterious as the concept of the Trinity, three gods in one. Because of his blindness and his intellectual gifts, Barty was homeschooled. Besides, no teacher was a match for his autodidactic skills, nor could anyone possibly inspire in him a greater thirst for knowledge than the one with which he had been born. Angel went to the same informal classroom, and her sole fellow student was also her teacher. They aced the periodic equivalency test that the law required. Their constant companionship seemed to be all play, yet was filled with constant learning, too. So they had cooked up this project. Math and mayhem, geometry of limbs and branches, arboreal science and childish stunt, a test of strategy and strength and skill, and the scary limits of nine-year-old bravado. Although she knew how, and although she knew the pointlessness of asking why, Agnes said, why? Oh, Lord, why must a blind boy climb a tree? He's blind, sure, but he's also a boy, Angel said, and trees are something a boy's got to do. Everyone from the pie caravan had gathered under the oak. The entire family, in its many names, adults and children, heads tipped back, hands shielding their eyes from the late sun, watched Barty's progress in all but complete silence. We've mapped three routes to the top, Angel said, and each offers different challenges. Barty's eventually going to climb all of them, but he's starting with the hardest. Well, of course he is, Agnes said exasperatedly. Angel grinned. That's Barty, huh? On he went, up he went, trunk to limb, limb to branch, branch to limb, to limb to trunk. 
hand over hand up the vertical parts, gripping with his knees, then standing and walking like a tightrope artist along limbs horizontal to the ground, swinging over empty air and stepping from one woody walkway to another, ever upward towards the highest bower, dwindling as though he were growing younger during the ascent, becoming a smaller and smaller boy. 40 feet, 50 feet, already far higher than the house, striving towards the green citadel at the summit. As they moved around the base of the oak from one vantage point to another, people stopped by to reassure Agnes, although never with the word, as though to speak would be to jinx the climb. Maria placed a hand on her arm, squeezed gently. Celestina briefly massaged the nape of her neck. Edom gave her a quick hug. Grace slipped an arm around her waist for a moment. Wally with the smile and thumbs up sign. Tom Vanadium, thumb and forefinger and a confident okay. Looking good. Hang in there. Signs and gestures, maybe because they didn't want her to hear the quivers and catch it in their voices. Paul stayed with her, sometimes wincing at the ground as though the danger was there, not above, which in a sense it was, because impact rather than the fall itself is a killer. And at other times, putting his arms around her, staring up the boy above. But he, too, was silent. Only Angel spoke, with nary a catch or a quiver, fully confident in her body. Anything he could teach me, I can learn. And anything I could see, he can know. Anything, Aunt Aggie. As Barty ascended higher, Agnes's fear became purer. But at the same time, she was filled with a wonderful, irrational exhilaration. That this could be accomplished, that the darkness could be overcome, struck music from the harp springs of the soul. From time to time, the boy paused, perhaps to rest or to mull over the three-dimensional map in his incredible mind. And every time that he started upward again, he put his hands in exactly the right places. Whereupon Agnes would speak an inner silent, yes. Her heart was with Barty high in the tree, her heart in his, as he had been with her, safe inside her womb, on the rainy twilight that she had ridden in the spinning, tumbling car to widowhood. At last, as the sun slowly set, he arrived at the highest of the high redoubts, beyond which the branches were too young and too weak to support him farther. Against a red sky enough to delight the most sullen sailors, he rose and stood in a final crook of limbs, pressing his left hand against a balancing branch, right hand planted cockily on his hip, lord of his domain, having kicked off the trembles of darkness and fashioned from them a ladder. A cheer went up from family and friends, and Agnes could only imagine what it must feel like to be Barty, both blind and blessed, his heart as rich in courage as in kindness. Now you don't have to worry, Angel said, about what happens to him if ever you're gone, Aunt Aggie. If he can do this, he could do anything, and you could rest easy. Agnes is only 39 years old, full of plans and vigor, so Angel's words seemed premature. Yet, in too few years, she would have reason to wonder if perhaps these gifted children foresaw, unconsciously, that she would need the comfort of having witnessed this climb. Going up, Angel declared. With the nimbleness and an alacrity that a lemur would have admired, the girl ascended to the first crotch. Calling after her, Agnes said, No, wait, sugar pie. He should be coming down right now before it gets dark. In the tree, the girl grinned. Even if he stays up there until dawn, he'll still be coming down in the dark, won't he? Oh, we'll be fine on Aggie. 
Testing Celestina's nerves as fully as Barty had tested his mother's, Angel pulled Lever's shinny swung herself so fast up through the tree, arriving at the boy's side while red streaks still enlivened the sky that was repainting itself purple. She stood in the crook of limbs with him, and her delighted laughter rang down through the cathedral oak. 1975 through 1978, Hare ran from dragon. Snake fled from horse, and 78 bounced to the beat because disco ruled. The reborn Bee Gees dominated the airwaves. John Travolta had the look. Rhodesian rebels, grasping the dangers inherent in any battle between equals, had the manful courage to slaughter unarmed women missionaries and schoolgirls. Spinks won the title from Ali, and Ali won it back from Spinks. On the morning in August that Agnes came home from Dr. Joshua Nunn's office with the results of tests and with the diagnosis of acute meloblastic leukemia, she asked that everyone pack up in caravan, not to deliver pies, but to visit an amusement park. She wanted to ride the roller coaster, spin on the tilt-a-whirl, and mostly watch the children laugh. She intended to store up the memory of Barty's laughter as he had stored up the side of her face and advanced to the surgery to remove his eyes. She didn't hide the diagnosis from the family, but she delayed telling them the prognosis, which was bleak. Already, her bones were tender, packed full of mutated, immature white cells that hindered the production of normal white cells, red cells, and platelets. Barty, 13 years old, but listening to books at a postgraduate college level, had no doubt studied leukemia while they were awaiting the test results to prepare himself to fully understand the diagnosis on first receiving it. He tried not to look stricken when he heard acute meloblastic, which was the worst form of the disease, but he appeared more ghastly in his pretense than if he had revealed his understanding. Had his eyes not been artificial, his stiff upper lip pose would have been utterly unconvincing. Before they set out for the amusement park, Agnes pulled him aside, held him close and said, Listen, kid of mine, I'm not giving up. Don't think I ever would. Let's have fun today. This evening, you and I and Angel will convene a meeting of the North Pole Society and not evil adventurers. The girl had become the third member years ago, and all truths be told and secrets known. That silly thing, he said with a half-sick note in his voice. Don't you say that. The society isn't silly, especially not now. It's us. It's what we were and how we are, and I do so much love everything that's us. In the park, rocketing along on the roller coaster, Barty had an experience, a reaction to more than the cant that turns to steep plunges. He grew excited in much the way that Agnes had seen him excited when grasping a new and arcane mathematical theory. At the end of the ride, he wanted to get back on immediately, and so they did. There are no long ways for the blind at amusement parks, always to the head of the line. Agnes rode twice with him then Paul twice, and finally Angel accompanied him three times. This roller coaster obsession wasn't about thrills or even amusement. His exuberance gave way to a thoughtful silence, especially after a seagull flew within inches of his face, feathers thrumming, startling him. On the next last rollick along the tracks. Thereafter, the park held little interest for him, and all he would say was that he had thought of a new way to feel things, by which he meant all the way things are, a fresh angle of approach to that mystery. After the amusement park, no hospital for the pie lady. With Wally near, she had a doctor all her own, capable of giving her the anti-cancer drugs and transfusions that she required. 
While radiation therapy is prescribed for acute lymphoblastic leukemia, it's much less useful to treat meloblastic cases. And in this instance, it wasn't deemed helpful, which made treatment at home even easier. In the first two weeks, when she wasn't on pie caravans, Agnes received guests and numbers that taxed her. But there were so many people that she wanted to see one last time. She fought hard, giving the disease all the what for that she could, and she held fast to hope. But she received the visitors nonetheless, just in case. Worse than the tenderness in the bones, the bleeding gums, the headaches, the ugly bruises, worse than the anemia-related weariness and the spells of breathlessness, was the suffering that her battle caused those whom she loved. More frequently as the days passed, they were unable to conceal their worry and their sorrow. She held their hands when they trembled. She asked them to pray with her when they expressed anger that this should happen to her, of all people, to her. And she wouldn't let them go until the anger was gone. More than once, she pulled sweet Angel into her lap, stroked her hair, and soothed her with the talk of all the good times they shared in better days. And always Barty, watching over her in his blindness, aware that she would not be dying in all the places where she was but taking no consolation from the fact that she would continue to exist in other worlds where he could never again be at her side. As terrible as the situation was for Barty, Agnes knew that it was equally difficult for Paul. She could only hold him in the night and let herself be held. And more than once she told him, if worse comes to worse, don't you go walking again. All right, he agreed, perhaps too easily. I mean it. You have a lot of responsibilities here. Barty, Pi Lady Services, people who depend on you, friends who love you. When you came on board with me, mister, you bought into a whole lot more than you could walk away from. I promise, Aggie, but you're not going anywhere. By the third week of October, she was bedridden. By the 1st of November, they had moved his mother's bed into the living room so she could be in the center of things, where always she had been, though they admitted no guests now, only members of her family with its many names. On the morning of November 3rd, Maria asked Barty to inquire of Agnes what she would like to have read to her. Then, when she answers you, just turn and leave the room. I'll take it from there. Take what from there? Maria asked. I have a little joke planned. Books were stacked high on a nearby table. Favorite novels and volumes of verse, all of which Agnes had read before. With time so limited, she preferred the comfort of the familiar to the possibility that new writers and new stories would fail to please. Paul read to her often, as did Angel. Tom Vanadium sat with her too, as did Celestina and Grace. This morning, as Barty stood off to one side listening, his mother asked Maria for poems by Emily Dickinson. Maria, puzzled but cooperative, left the room as instructed, and Barty removed the correct book from the stack on the table without anyone's guidance. He sat in the armchair at his mother's side and began to read. I never saw more, I never saw the sea, yet I know how the heather looks and what a billow be. Pulling herself up in the bed, peering at him suspiciously, she said, You've gone and memorized old Emily. Just reading from the page, he assured her. I never spoke with God, nor visited in heaven, yet certain I am of the spot, as if the checks were given. Barty? she said wonderingly. 
thrilled to have inspired this awe in her. He closed the book. Remember what we talked about a long time ago? You asked me how come if I could walk where the rain wasn't? Then how come you couldn't walk where your eyes were healthy and leave the tumors there? She remembered. I said it doesn't work out that way, and and it doesn't. Yet, I don't actually walk in those other worlds to avoid the rain, but I, I sort of walk in the idea of those worlds. Very quantum mechanics, she said. You've said that before. He nodded. The effect not only comes before a cause in this case, but completely without a cause. The effect is staying dry in the rain, but the cause, supposedly walking in a drier world, never occurs. Only the idea of it. Weirder even than Tom Vanadium made a sound. Anyway, something clicked in me on the roller coaster, and I grasped a new angle of approach to the problem. I figured out that I could walk in the idea of sight, sort of sharing the vision of another me, in another reality, without actually going there. He smiled into her astonishment. So what do you say about that? She wanted so badly to believe, to see her son made whole again. And the funny thing was that she could believe, and without emotional risk, because it was true. To prove himself, he read a little of Dickens when she requested it, a passage from Great Expectations, then a passage from Twain. She asked him how many fingers she was holding up, and he said four, and four it was, then two fingers, then seven, her hands so pale, the palms both bruised. Because his lacrimal glands and tear ducts were intact, Barty could cry with his plastic eyes. Consequently, it didn't seem all that much more incredible to be seeing with him. This trick, however, was far more difficult than walking where the rain wasn't. Sustaining vision took both the mental and physical toll from him. Her joy was worth the price he paid to see it. As mentally demanding and as stressful as it was to maintain this borrowed sight, the harder thing was looking upon her face after all these years of blindness, only to see her gaunt, so pale. The vital, lovely woman whose image he had guarded so vigilantly in memory would be nudged aside hereafter by this withered version. They agreed that to the outside world, Barty must continue to appear to be a sightless man, or otherwise either be treated like a freak or be subjected, perhaps unwillingly, to experimentation. In the modern world, there were no tolerance for miracles. Only family could be told of this development. If this amazing thing can happen, Barty, what else? Maybe this is enough. Oh, it certainly is. It certainly is enough, but I don't regret much, you know. But I do regret not being here to see why you and Angel have been brought together. I know it'll be something lovely, Barty. Something so fine. They had a few days for quiet celebration of this astonishing recovery of his sight. And in that time, she never tired of watching him read to her. He didn't think she even listened closely. It was the fact that him made whole that lifted her spirits so high as they were now. Not any writer's words, nor any story ever written. On the afternoon of November 9th, when Paul and Barty were with her, reminiscing, and Angel was in the kitchen getting drinks for them, his mother gasped and stiffened. Breathless, she paled past chalk. And when she could breathe and speak again, she said, Get Angel now. No time to bring any others. The three of them, gathered around her in the quick, held fast to her, as if death couldn't take what they refused to release. To Paul, she said, How I loved your innocence, and giving you experience.
Aggie, no, he pleaded. Don't start walking again, she reminded him. Her voice grew thinner when she spoke to Angel, but in this new frailty, Barty heard such love that he shook at the power of it. God's in you, Angel. So strong you shine, and nothing bad at all. Unable to speak, the girl kissed her and then gently placed her head against Agnes's breast, capturing forever in memory the pure sound of her heart. Wonder boy, Agnes said to Barty. Super mom. God gave me a wonderful life. You remember that. Be strong for her. All right. She closed her eyes, and he thought that she was gone, but then she opened them again. There is one place beyond all the way things are. I hope so, he said. Your old mom wouldn't lie to you, would she? Not my old mom. Precious boy. He told her that he loved her, and she slipped away upon his words. As she went, the haggard look at a terminal leukemic patient passed from her, and before the gray mask of death replaced it, he saw the beauty he had preserved in memory when he was three, before they took his eyes. Saw it so briefly, as if something transforming welled out of her, a perfect light, her essence. Out of respect for his mother, Barty struggled to hold fast to his eyeless second sight, living the idea of a world where he still had vision, until she had been accorded the honor she deserved and had been laid to rest beside his father. He wore his dark blue suit on the day. He went in the pretense of blindness, gripping Angel's arms, but he missed nothing and etched every detail in his memory against the need of them in the coming dark. She was 43. So young they have left such a mark upon the world. Yet more than 2,000 people attended her funeral service, which was conducted by clergymen of seven denominations. And the subsequent procession to the cemetery was so lengthy that some people had to park a mile away and walk. The mourners streamed across the grassy hills and amongst the headstones for the longest time. But the presiding minister did not begin the graveside service until all had assembled. None here showed impatience at the delay. Indeed, when the final prayer was said and the casket lowered, the crowd hesitated to depart, lingering in the most unusual way, until Barty realized that, like he himself, they half expected a miraculous resurrection and ascension. For among them had so recently walked this one who was without stain. Agnes Lampion, the Pie Lady. At home again, in the safety of the family, Barty collapsed in exhaustion from the sustained effort to see with eyes that he didn't possess. A bed for ten days, feverish, afflicted with vertigo and migraine headaches, nauseated. He lost eight pounds before his recovery was complete. He hadn't lied to his mother. She assumed that by some quantum magic, he had regained his sight permanently, and that this came with no cost. He merely allowed her to go to her rest with the comforting misapprehension that her son had been free from darkness. Now to blindness he returned for five years, until 1983. Chapter 83 Each momentous day, the work was done in memory of his mother. At Pie Lady Services, always, they sought new recipes and new ways of brightening the corner where they were. Barty's mathematical genius proved to have a valuable practical application. Even in his blindness, he perceived patterns where those with sight did not. 
Working with Tom Vanadium, he devised strikingly successful investment strategies based on subtleties of the stock market's historical performance. By the 1980s, the foundation's annual return on its endowment averaged 26%. Excellent in light of the fact that the runaway inflation of the 1970s had been curbed. During the five years following Agnes' death, their family of many names thrived. Barty and Angela brought them all together in this place 15 years previously. But the destiny about which Tom had spoken on the back porch that night in the rain seemed to be in no hurry to manifest itself. Barty could find no painless way to sustain secondhand sight, so he lived without the light. Angel had no reason to shove anyone else into the world of the big bugs where she'd push Cain. The only miracles in their lives were the miracle of love and friendship. But the family remained convinced of eventual wonders, even as they got on with the day at hand. No one was surprised by his proposal, her acceptance, and the wedding. Barty and Angel were both 18 when they married in June of 1983. For just one hour, which was not too taxing, he walked in the idea of a world where he had healthy eyes and shared the vision of other Bartys in other places, so he would be able to see his bride as she walked down the aisle, and as, beside him, she took her vows with him, and as she held out her hand to receive the ring. In all the many way things are, across the infinity of worlds in all creation, Barty believed that no woman existed whose beauty exceeded hers, or whose heart was better. At the conclusion of the ceremony, he relinquished his second-hand sight, he will live in darkness until Easter in 1986, though every minute of the day was brightened by his wife. The wedding reception, big, noisy, and joyous, spread across the three properties without fences. His mother's name was so often mentioned, her presence so strongly felt in all the lives that she had touched, that sometimes it seemed that she was actually there with them. In the morning, after their first night together, without either of them suggesting what must be done, Barty and Angel went in silence into the backyard and, together, climbed the oak to watch the sunrise from its highest bower. Three years later, on Easter Sunday in 1986, the fabled bunny brought them a gift. Angel gave birth to Mary. It's time for a nice ordinary name in this family, she declared. To see his newborn baby girl, Barty shared the sight of other Bartys. And he so adored this little wrinkled Mary that he sustained his vision all day until a thunderous migraine became too much to bear and a sudden frightening slurring of speech drove him back to the comfort of blindness. The slur faded from his voice in minutes, but he suspected the straining too long to sustain his borrowed vision could result in a stroke or worse. Blind he remained until an afternoon in May 1993 when at last a miracle occurred and the meaning that Tom Vanadium had foreseen so long began to manifest. When Angel came in search of Barty, breathless with excitement, he was chatting with Tom Vanadium in the Foundation's office above the garages. Years ago, the two apartments had been combined and expanded when the garages under them were doubled in size, providing better living quarters for Tom and working space as well. Although he was 76, Tom still worked for Pie Lady Services. They had no set retirement age for staff, and Father Tom expected to die at his work. And if it's a pie caravan day, just leave my old carcass where I drop until you make all the deliveries. 
I won't be responsible for anyone missing a promise, Pi. He was Father Tom again, having recommitted to his vows three years previous. At his request, the church had assigned him as a chaplain of Pi Lady Services. So Barty and Tom just happened to be chatting about a quantum physicist they had seen on a television program. A documentary about the uncanny resonance between the belief in the created universe and some recent discoveries in quantum mechanics and molecular biology. The physicist claimed that a handful of his colleagues, though by no means the majority, believed that with a deepening understanding of the quantum level of reality, there will be in time a surprising rapprochement between science and faith. Angel interrupted, bursting into the room, gasping for breath. Come quick. It's incredible. It's wonderful. You gotta see this. And I mean, Barty, you have to see this. Okay. I'm saying, you have to see this. What's she saying? He asked Tom. She has something she wants you to hear. As he rose from his chair, Barty began to reacquaint himself with the feeling of all the way things are, began to bend his mind around the loops and rolls and tucks of reality that he had perceived on the roller coaster that day. And by the time he had followed Angel and Tom to the bottom of the stairs and into the oak-shaded yard beyond the house, the day faded into view for him. Mary was at play here, and the sight of her, his first in seven years, almost brought Barty to his knees. She was the image of her mother, and he knew that this must be at least a little bit what Angela looked like when, at three, she had initially arrived here in 1968, when she explored the kitchen on that first day and found the toaster under a sock. If the sight of his daughter almost drove him to his knees, the sight of his wife, also his first in seven years, lifted him until he was virtually floating across the grass. On the lawn, Coco, their four-year-old golden retriever, was lying on her back, all paws in the air, presenting the great gift of her furry belly for the rubbing pleasure of young Mistress Mary. Honey, Angel said to her daughter, show us that game you were just playing with Coco. Show us, honey. Come on, show us, show us. To Barty, Mary said, Mommy's all hyper about this. You know Mommy, Barty said almost desperately sponging up the side of his little girl's face and wringing the images into his memory to sustain him in the next long darkness. Can you really see right now, Daddy? I really can. Do you like my shoes? They're cool shoes. Do you like the way my hair... Show us, show us, show us, Angel urged. Okay, Mary said. Coco, let's play. The dog rolled off her back and sprang up tail wagging, ready for fun. Mary had a yellow vinyl ball of the type Coco would happily chase all day and, if allowed, chew all night, keeping the house awake with his squeaking. Want this? She asked Coco. Coco wanted it, of course, needed it, absolutely had to have it, and leapt into action as Mary pretended to throw the ball. After a few racing steps, when the dog realized Mary hadn't thrown the ball, it whipped around and sprinted back. Mary ran, Catch me if you can, and darted away. Coco changed direction with a fantastic pivot turn and bounded after the girl. Mary pivoted too, turning sharply to her left, and disappeared. Oh my, said Tom Vanadium. 
One moment, girl in yellow vinyl ball. The next moment, gone as if they had never been. Coco skated to a halt, perplexed, looked left, looked right, floppy ears lifted slightly to catch any sound of Mistress Mary. Behind the dog, Mary walked out of nowhere, ball in hand, and Coco whirled in surprise, and the chase was on again. Three times Mary vanished, and three times she reappeared before she led the bamboozled Coco to her mother and father. Neat, huh? When did you realize you could do this? Tom asked. Just a little bit ago, the girl said. I was sitting on the porch having a popsicle and I just figured it out. Barty looked at Angel and Angel looked at Barty and they dropped to their knees on the grass for their daughter. They were both grinning and then their grin stiffened a little bit. No doubt thinking about the land of the big bugs into which she had pushed Enoch Kane, which was exactly what Barty had suddenly thought about. Angel said, Honey, this is amazing. It's wonderful. But you've got to be careful. It's not scary, said Mary. I just step into another place for a little and, and then back. It's like going from one room to the next. I, I can't get stuck over there or anything. She looked at Barty. You know how it is, Dad. Sorta. Of. What your mother means. Maybe some of those are bad places, Angel warned. Oh, sure, I know, Mary said, but when it's a bad place, you feel it before you go in. So you just go around to the next place that isn't bad. No big deal. No big deal. Barty wanted to hug her. He did hug her. He hugged Angel, too. He hugged Tom Vanadium. I need a drink, Father Tom said. Mary Lampion, Little Light, was homeschooled as her father and mother had been. But she didn't study just reading, writing, and arithmetic. Gradually, she developed a range of fascinating talents not taught in any school, and she went exploring in a great number of the many ways things are, journeying in the world right here but unseen. In his blindness, Barty listened to her reports and, through her, saw more than he could have seen if never he had lost his eyes. On Christmas Eve, 1996, the family gathered in the middle of the three houses for dinner. The living room furniture had been moved aside to the walls, and three tables had been set in the end, the length of the room, to accommodate everyone. When the long table was latent and the wine poured, when everyone but Mary settled in the chairs, Angel said, My daughter tells me she wants to make a short presentation before I say grace. I don't know what it is, but she assures me it doesn't involve singing, dancing, or reading any of her poetry. Barty, at the head of the table, sensed Mary's approach only as she was about to touch him. She put a hand on his arm and said, Daddy, will you turn your chair away from the table and let me sit on your lap? If there's a presentation, I assume I'm the presentee, he said, turning his chair sideways to the table and taking her into his lap. Just remember, I never wear neckties. Me either, like, for real, why? Why are those required for jobs? Why do they do that? Like, ugh, like, oh my God. So, I have a necktie and it's really dope and the only way I'll wear a necktie is if it's to accomplish the fact of me looking sexier. I have a necktie that quite honestly, when I put it on, I feel like I can't breathe. And you know what color that necktie is? It's literally all the colors because it's every necktie I have. Yes, I look sexy in every necktie I wear. You can't be me, don't try.
I love you, Daddy, she said, and put the palms of her hands flat against his temples. In the Barty's darkness came light that he had not sought. He saw a smiling Mary on his lap as she lowered her hands from his temples, saw the face of his family, the table set with Christmas decorations and many candles flickering. This will stay with you, Mary said. It's shared sight from all the other yous and all the other places, but you won't have to make any effort to hold on to it. No headaches. No problems ever. Merry Christmas, Daddy. And so, at the age of 31, after more than 28 years of blindness with a few short reprieves, Barty Lampion received the gift of sight from his 10-year-old daughter. 1996 through 2000, day after day, the work was done in memory of Agnes Lampion, Joey Lampion, Harrison White, Seraphim White, Jacob Isaacson, Simon Magison, Tom Vanadium, Grace White, and most recently Wally Lipscomb in memory of all of those who had given so much and, though perhaps alive in other places, were gone from here. At Thanksgiving dinner, again at the three tables set end to end, in the year of the triple zero, Mary Lampion, now 14 years old, made an interesting announcement over the pumpkin pie. In her travels where none but she could go, after seven fascinating years of exploring a fraction of all the infinite worlds, she said she sensed beyond doubt that, as Barty's mother had told him on her deathbed, there is one special place beyond all the way things are. One shining place. And give me long enough, I'm going to find out how to get there and see it. Alarmed, her mother said, without dying first. Well, sure, said Mary. Without dying first, that would be the easy way to get there. I'm a Lampian, aren't I? Do we take the easy way if we can avoid it? Did Daddy take the easiest way up the oak tree? Barty set one other rule. Without dying first, and you have to be sure you can get back. If I ever get there, I'll be back, she promised to gather family. Imagine how much we'll have to talk about. Maybe I'll even get some new pie recipes from over there. 2000, the year of the dragon, gives way without a roar to the year of the snake, and after the snake comes the horse. Day by day, the work is done, and memory of those who have gone before us and embarked upon work of her own, young Mary is out there among you. For now, only her family knows how special she is. On one momentous day, that will change. The End I can't tell you how happy this book makes me. And I know that it has a lot of theological discussions and a lot of uh, spirituality in it. That literally just struck me reading it now. When I read it, when I was, I don't know, I, was, I wasn't a kid. I was a kid, I mean, but I wasn't a kid. I was like 20, maybe 22. When I read it then, I didn't see any of that. All I saw was the music. Like, it's weird for me to explain, but I can see, it's, it's almost like reading music. It's almost like, mu it's almost like musical sunshine. It just alights on me and it just stays. And it's a beautiful place. And that's where I was when I first read this book. And so I read this book like every so often, but I don't know about y'all, but when I reread a book, I don't always reread the book. 
I read it knowing where I'm going rather than reading it thoroughly for others. And so I will glance over parts that I didn't like or I will veer through things or speed through things that I didn't need to remember to get to where I wanted to be at. Or for some books, I quite often just honestly open the page directly to where I want to be and just go from there and then close the book. It's kind of like getting a piece of cake out the refrigerator. You know, that uh, good buttercream frosting cake with the strawberry filling. You just take a piece out and you just sit there with the refrigerator open and you just eat it. Or is this fat boy stories? Me? Alright, cool. I don't even care. I'm still... Refrigerator's cold. Buttercream is cold. Strawberry is great. It's a white cream or it's a white cake. It just tastes the best. Next to lemon cake. But reading for y'all is giving me the opportunity to actually savor the entire meal instead of just getting an amuse-bouche of, of a story. And so I thank y'all for that. And I hope that y'all are enjoying the meal. 916-633-1537. I have no idea what I'm going to read next. It's going to be something ratchet, though. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Leave a review on Spotify. Literally just touch the button, the star button, and then from there just put five stars. Um, you can also leave a review on Podchaser and copy and paste that into the Good Pods app and copy and paste that into Apple Podcasts. You can donate to the show at patreon.com slash single simulcast or at buymeacoffee.com slash sscast or on the Good Pods app. There's a tip jar. Thank you again for listening. I do greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm holler you later. Peace. and outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. Don't know my name, did you say?